Hello everyone, Cody here. We spoke with Cecil Tenga Tenga, a researcher at the Yale School of Public Health, who's interested in infectious and liver diseases, digital health systems, bioethics, and human policy. He speaks with us about the systems of healthcare across various cultures, and we hope you'll find this interesting. Enjoy. <music> Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast Against Disease. I am Natalie Fodiatis, and with me is Cody Weston. Hello. With us today is our esteemed guest, Cecil Tenga Tenga, who has graciously agreed to speak with us about his experience working in public health research related to underserved communities of various types, as we'll find. He is a public health researcher who's interested in infectious and liver diseases, digital health systems, bioethics, and health policy. He's worked with municipal and federal grants to scale up HIV and viral hepatitis prevention and treatment initiatives in Connecticut. He's also interested in bioethics and is involved in faith-based initiatives around the world within the Anglican Church Communion, uh, and he is a lay minister in that faith. Anything else you want me to cover by way of introduction, Cecil? Well, I think, uh, thank you so much, and thank you for having me here. You know, I'm really excited about those conversations, but I think you covered good ground, good introductory um, ground of, of what I do. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Why don't you tell our guests how you first became interested in studying health disparities? For me, it's really an extension of just upbringing, growing up. My, my parents were, um, you know, some missionary types. And we mostly lived in communities where, you know, we underserved to begin with. So issues of access to social services were always the priority of some of, you know, the main uh, responsibilities that they had in, in this mission post. But when it comes to public health specifically, I grew up at a time when malaria projects were just taking off in Malawi. And things like having safety net when you go to bed, as I'm talking about malaria prevention, where things that were constantly uh, on the radio. And some of the scientists that were working on those projects would come from Cambridge and Oxford and, and live with our family. Uh, and then as HIV came on the scene, the same thing started happening. The faith communities where some of the first responders to the HIV epidemic in Africa, in my part of the world, but also they were the biggest culprits in and disseminating misinformation about how HIV is transmitted, leading to things like social stigma. So I experienced, you know, during my formative years, and as I grew older, you know, it's sort of like things that I naturally gravitate towards. And when I was in college, the way I could combine all, that, all those issues were to look at the impact of human rights and humanitarian intervention, when both when it's performed by government actors or intergovernmental actors and, and faith communities on behalf of minority populations. So I was mostly interested in sort of like, you know, trying to find the interface and some of the systems through which we can render some of this work to be a little bit more equal and, and avoid exploitation, which some of it I've seen growing up. So that's how I got interested in the issues that I work on. I think you started to get at this, but it sounds like you started to see some of these problems very early. I concede that I know very little about the history of Malawi. I don't want to do the topic injustice, but can you help us understand the nature of public health in 
Malawi in terms of what the biggest challenges you noticed were that, that affected you growing up? Yeah, sure, sure. So, you know, just like, you know, any other country that sort of, like, gained its independence from European powers around the 1960s, Malawi was a former colony of, of Britain. In the 50s, Malawi, Zambia, and Zimbabwe were formed into, you know, sort of, like, were federalized and were uh, governed as one one country, or the federal state of Malawi, then Nyasaland and, and Rhodesia, southern Rhodesia being Zimbabwe, northern Rhodesia being Zambia. And that lasted for about 10 years until the 60s, 1960, when the liberation movement in Malawi was got to the point where it was impossible to ignore the trajectory of Malawi becoming an independent state. Okay. And in 1963, Malawi got its independence. And then Zambia, I think it was 64, just a little bit prior, I can quite you know, square up Zambia's state. And then Zimbabwe would take much longer. Rhodesia and southern Rhodesia would be liberated in, in the 1980s. But what that meant for health systems in Malawi was that the health infrastructure that was built for Malawians was either connected to the faith mission, so missionaries, missionary hospitals where they did some teaching of nurses and medical assistants. My grandfather, who I'm named after, was trained in one of those missionary stations and sent to, to work throughout Southern Africa as a medical assistant. So what, what ended up uh, remaining in Malawi as a public health infrastructure is a patchwork of those missionary hospitals and some of the initiatives that their young Malawi government decided to put together so they could govern the system. But obviously with that, what it meant was when the government took control of the health system, about 60, you know, 60% of, of the health system was provided by some kind of faith-based organization, whether they were directly run by churches, by local established churches like the Anglican Church or the Presbyterians, by churches like the Roman Catholic Church or the Seventh-day Adventists and that sort of like that branch of health ministry. Religion and public health have been intricately linked. Just like I say here in the U.S., it, it's almost the same thing when you look at who's behind the big health system, and still pretty much disproportionately public ones have some kind of faith affiliation, Protestant or Jewish or Roman Catholic. It's pretty, it's pretty much the same in Malawi. And when it comes to gaps, existing gaps, things that have, since independence, things that have been uh, difficult for, for the Malawi system to absorb are, there isn't really, until recently, there hasn't really been a conversation about what universal health care could look like for the entire population. What we rather have is a system where subsidies are provided for individuals to go to public hospitals that are run by the government to access free health care. But it's not really free in the sense that you might see your doctor today, but in order for you to get your prescription, you have to go to a private pharmacy and buy that, that medication. Hmm. So even though, even though the health care appears to be universal and appears to be free for everybody, it's really just not from a, from a health expenditure and out-of-pocket. Folks pay a lot of money just to be able to afford your basic health coverage needs. And what that also did for the supportive service you can build around that is many of them were tied to churches. So for you either had to be affiliated with one of the, the dominant religious institutions in Malawi, including Islam, Muslim health organizations. And as Malawi, just like everywhere else, has evolved from being heavily influenced by religion, sort of like, you know, began to absorb some of that secular culture. That's began to present some inequalities and many of them are really around now. You can sort of like talk, talk about them as 
as a class war between those who are poor and still attached to churches and those who have been liberated have made it into the middle class and have enough money to afford private insurance and to go to private hospitals. So what you now have is a very fragmented system, still heavily religious. I think there are still about, if not 58% or 60 60% of healthcare coverage being provided by our faith-based organizations. Some of it, as part of it, maybe about 15% being provided by uh, the government and the rest, these new managed care type of organizations open up and united and providing services. So Malawi, in a sense, has, has those inequalities. It's interesting how much it reflects the American system, although we have, I mean, I guess we do have with Medicaid the same sort of public assistance for the for people in more extreme poverty. I, I do think that the role of religion is diminished here, although I absolutely agree with you that most of the major medical systems do still have those ties, at least by name. I mean, even at major academic hospitals like I think of Penn Presbyterian associated with UPenn in Philly, for example. Well, and also actually there's a really fascinating history with the Mayo Clinic and the nuns that were part of that from the very beginning. There's a really great documentary on it on PBS, actually, that speaks very much to what Cecil was just explaining about this link between religious groups and and provision of healthcare for the poor. Yeah, I think it would almost be worth an entire episode or more one day talking about how religion and healthcare are intertwined, considering that it, it predates Christianity, that uh, that these factors were intermingled. And now that demographics are shifting, a lot of people are moving away from organized religion. I wonder how that's going to affect the face of healthcare and what the best way forward would be. So Cecil, it sounds like you have a very rich personal history and experience that you bring into your work here that you're doing now. Can you tell us a little bit about the projects that you're doing and and how you got into them? Yeah, sure. So when I graduated from, from Trinity College in Hartford, I decided to go to what I thought was going to be a, my mom's career path, business school. And, and then I was thinking of Dartmouth College because um, I had some history through a really close family friend of ours had gone there and you know, I'd seen his, you know, had observed his career. And, and my mom had started out uh, her own career as, a, as an auditor working for municipal government and at a university. And I had been pulling around the idea of doing the same and working in social impact investment. But after my short stay in a summer program that uh, Dartmouth hosted, I came back with my own girlfriend, who's now my uh, partner, uh, to Hartford, and witnessed a really violent scene where what looked like, I think they were probably either high school or just 7th and 8th graders fighting in the presence of police and, and first responders without nobody uh, taking responsibility or even trying to break the, the fight apart. And it had an effect, you know, that just had an impact on me. I, I kind of want to be part of a counter-narrative to this. After daring to break the fight, went back home and was like, there's got to be a way I can be part of the solution that's different. And ended up starting up to become a teacher. I started off as a paraprofessional, working with you know, students with special needs in a charter school during the day. And then after school, to math for a, an academic enrichment program that was trying to form an academy to sort of like create a pipeline for inner city students into high achieving 
high schools, including independent private schools uh, on the Northeast. So I did that for, you know, for about two years. Then just came up with, ma- you know, major challenges while working with kids that began me on a track of thinking about what other skills I needed to be able to be effective as a teacher. And public health came into the in, into my um, so my purview again because it was like a lot of what I was trying to deal with with my students, either whether they had IEPs and with kids with special needs or it was just my regular kids dealing with social behaviors that were pushing against the school policy. I quickly noticed that I was working on the issues that we were trying to address as teachers, structural social determinants of health, but I just really didn't know how to bring those into my classroom given that I was teaching math and not necessarily like a primary special education teacher. So I decided to put myself into more school and ended up at Yale Divinity School because I had noticed a loophole in that academic offering that you could you could make major in one thing but then go to a couple of professional schools and design your own concentration given your expected career trajectory and i knew that for me uh, it was not necessarily wanting to become like my parents like a missionary or become a priest but it was to work around how do you handle how do you support uh, a medical system that's become so overly biomedical to the fact to the point that if you work with minorities the first thing you have to educate your patient population is just the science of healthcare itself before we even talk about health Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, religion maybe might be a path of explaining disease to someone else before we can start talking about these other things. So I really went into divinity school with the intent of coming out and going back to uh, education and working fully in special education. But once you enter these spaces and opportunities come up and offer a job to work with an HIV organization that was working on housing and, and addiction and became an auditor for municipal government looking into how they could phase in housing first, sort of like a harm reduction approach to ending homelessness for people with addiction and HIV. And, and since that's been one opportunity after the next, and I sort of like carved out a path for myself as a public policy implementation project officer. And and now just beginning to take hiatus in, in, in doing that, but on the research side. That's a fascinating career path and a really creative way of getting into this arena. I'm really impressed that you'd been able to find these avenues to do what you wanted to do in such a non-traditional way. It's been exciting and, and, and hard, but mostly exciting. <laughs> and also just, I just wanted to comment on your willingness to really put yourself in the middle of situations that you see as unjust and needing to take action against. And I would imagine that the patient population that you work with currently is, is able to see that you have that heart and that passion and that courage to really you know, go to bat for them. Yeah, well, thank, I mean, thank you, Natalie, for saying. I think now would be a good time to talk a little bit about HIV and hepatitis C. My understanding is these are two of the disease entities that you're focusing on at this time. Is that right? Yeah, so it's uh, that those two and my addiction. Yeah, I, I think it's worth discussing some of the public health implications of HIV and hepatitis C. I, I'm far from an expert, but I've worked in the... Uh, Bartlett Clinic at uh, Johns Hopkins, where we do psychiatric care for uh, this population. And it is, from my perspective, remarkable how much the landscape has changed over the decades after hearing from some of the older faculty. I'd like to see what your thoughts are on those 
diseases. Why do you see HIV and hepatitis C as particularly important diseases to study and to try to address from a public health standpoint? Uh, when you have something, just like we're experiencing with, uh, with uh, COVID, when you have uh, an infection that's as infectious as HIV spreading at the rate HIV has spread across the world within the last two decades or so and claim so many lives. I think it's not even a conversation about, you know, why should we be thinking about this? It's like, how can we live better so that the impact of what our present reality uh, does not become so overwhelming that we can't do anything else? But those of us who've been working in HIV for, for some time now and have been impacted by HIV know that what's happening with COVID is a situation that is almost similar to some of the in initial reactions to when HIV came on the scene in the early 80s and as as it was coming uh, through the 90s and sort of like, you know, touching each region differently. I think it mattered how each country responded to, uh, to HIV. It mattered how organizations re- responded to HIV. It mattered how it, families responded to HIV. So for me, I think HIV is a barometer of, of justice. Uh, that's one way I think of it. Are we a society in which we can allow life to flourish equally with equal access and equitable resources for everybody else so that you know, people can solve determine their future. And and for a long time, I think HIV, we, before we had these powerful biomedical interventions uh, that could prevent transmission, but also that could suppress the, the presence of the virus in the system to the point where it's undetectable. Before any of those things, I mean, if you had HIV, your life was done. You most likely lost your job. Your friends left you. Everybody was gossiping about you. And, uh, and in some places like New York, I mean, you couldn't even bury, be buried in a proper grave, you know, wow. it's a big mass grave where you're dumped in. So, like, you know, when I think about that, and when I think about if humanity is capable of responding to something so common and something like floating within the community that might be fueled by other things, but if we can respond it to with such division and divisiveness, what kind of world am I living for my daughter who is now six years old? That's sort of like, you know, the lens through which I approach HIV. Yes, it's it's a disease state, but it's also a statement of, of what our values are in, in how we respond to it. And now I think it's becoming even more so. I'm in Connecticut and with PrEP coming on the scene, which is uh, a drug that you can take daily pill, you can take to prevent yourself from being infected with HIV, it's been made available, but the people who are benefiting from, from it the most are white gay men. But in my state, we're seeing that the rate of infection among women, black women in, in, in particular, has just gone up. It's unacceptable that they don't have access to PrEP. And it's even unacceptable from a research side. You know, the inter- my interest in bioethics is to really to, to be an activist on clinical trials. You cannot ignore people who are heavily impacted by an infection such as HIV from clinical trials when you're doing uh, efficacy uh, trials of drug development. Mm-hmm. It just so happens that right now we do have one for women. All the efficacy trials, a lot of the efficacy trials we approved and passed the test when PrEP was sent to by the FDA were among men. So we've struggled on the training side to do trainings for, for women for PrEP. But you know, slowly but surely, I think I, I'm not, I don't want to paint a picture about PrEP, PrEP because there are some trials that are actively going on right now with women particularly in Africa, to figure out if PrEP can be made widely available for women. But when you have those kinds of disparities and they're acceptable, 
for me, it's just it's a statement about what society holds to be true about morality and and equity and all those things. And Hep C is also going through the same thing from 2013 coming here. We've had very highly effective medications that can cure Hep C in anybody else who's uh, who's infected in as short as eight weeks. Whereas the old medication, which included some chemo-like treatment, it took you 14 months. But the sad thing about that too is, you know, on the clinical trial and efficacy trials that were done, I think enough emphasis wasn't done on minority populations. And there are, even though there are tiny differences, the efficacy of these new DAAs that are supposed to treat hep C, there are differences in how they work with affluent white patients than in a mostly minority population. But also the fact that minority populations don't only present one hep C with a white affluent patient might have gotten that hep C from a drug transfusion that went wrong way back when. But many minority patients might have gotten from a whole host of things that they're trying to address and ignoring that context in drug development and allowing drugs to be improved with those margins of differences in efficacy to me matter because you begin to multiply how many minorities do we have here and how does it translate into countries in which they are majority where HIV and HEPC are taking hold, you can see even if we were to have an equitable distribution and our systems were working the way they're, they're supposed to work, that we'll still have a gap. Health disparities inbuilt in our solutions. Medications highly effective among mostly Western patient populations, but the Caribbean not experiencing the same benefits. Africa and its diaspora not experiencing the same benefits. Asia not experiencing the same benefits. Like those things are and the reasons why I think HIV and Hep C are looking at it, and because we also have access to data, I think it helps us learn and adapt whatever went wrong there for any disease state that we can have. HIV and Hep C are important. They are a lens through which we can see what our values are, but also they provide context for solving some of the inequalities that we have. I'm really interested in what you'd said about the ethics from a research standpoint, because this is something that it- I've encountered in speaking about women's mental health topics, it's oftentimes the very research protections that we try and put in place present barriers to performing studies using underserved populations because there's such an emphasis on not exploiting those populations that Mm -hmm. I think people tend to shy away from them, perhaps to the extreme of course, studying female populations, there are certain other variables like reproductive status, menstrual status, these kinds of things, which are certainly complicating factors, but not insurmountable ones. But I suspect that that is by far the smaller factor. I think a lot of it may be just a, a correlate of the socioeconomic disparities that the people doing a lot of the research are performing their studies in white majority areas. And so we're not getting the diverse patient population that we might want for a more generalizable study. And that is disappointing. I mean, I think it's both. I mean, I think the point you raise is important. And and the way I think about it is it's about equity. Let's not spend so much time wanting to hyper or emphasize inequalities before we talk about equity. Within ethics, I mean, that's precisely the issue with research ethics. You know, the reason why we have these institutional review boards is because, yes, there were exploitation of human subjects and who happened to be 
people of color and minorities and women and prisoners and kids. The, the, the result from that shouldn't be let's exclude them from, from research. Rather, let's come up with a robust enough framework for, for human protection that any researcher who's serious and wanting to engage in, say, HIV research has to fulfill those requirements before they do their work. And I think what we now have is people shying away from that. We talk, we're talking about mental health. One of my biggest barriers when I was doing Hep C for Connecticut, the challenge came when I went to sort of going to Planned Parenthood and OBGYNs and saying, oh, listen, we need to integrate Hep C treatment. If you guys are beginning to get these federally qualified health center lookalike uh, designations so you can become a patient-centered you know, patient medical home, well, you need to have as part of your repertoire of treatment Hep C. And many of them were like, no, that is not an issue with our population. But data had just been released, really irrefutable. And so data that you can't ignore that we were having an issue with Hep C flare-ups among pregnant women. Mm. And women are, you know, between the ages of 18 and 34. That, yes, we're tied to some of the partners. It was a reproductive health issue. But nobody wanted to look at it because of all these other things they thought they had to go through. No, listen, like, Train your providers, just like you're training them to do HIV. I can give you training. And we had training. I had training. I had give, I've been given money to train anybody else who was interested in prescribing DAAs for women. But nobody came up, and people were afraid. And the same thing in DOC. I went to DOC and tried to work with the medication-assisted uh, treatment programs that were beginning to do ethanol. We know in Connecticut, at least, that DOC does not have enough providers, but also an infrastructure for hep C. But SAMHSA is funding all these satellite MAT programs. How about we roll in uh, hep C treatment for those populations? They say no. So I think it is, people just have to get over the fact that, it might, yes, there were violations in the past, uh, and maybe what we might have to do today to work with those same populations require a little bit more resources. So let's have, and let's ask NIH or CDC or whoever the funders are, when you're funding HIV research, to distribute and to take into account what does it mean to have an you know equitable resources for a researcher to conduct research with the protections that are needed for, for special populations. But for now, I think what we have are these really lofty and really wonderful reports on human subjects research and ethics. But the impact, like you just identified, is we're lacking in really generalizable information because a whole host of populations have been uh, ignored. So I think you know, like equity, I think, goes deep. And that's why I'm like, I'm energized about this bioethics trend and, and hoping that more people can begin to take this on and help institutions like, no, what we need is equitable access to these resources so researchers can do that work. You know, there's so much in what you just said that I would really love to be able to dive into and tease out more. But one question that comes to mind immediately is you were just talking about the need to have more research that is engaging with minority populations and groups of people that historically have negative experiences in research that hasn't been done in a, in a proper way. There have been some abuses. How have you been able to engage with those populations with this history? It has been difficult to gain their trust and if you've been able to do so, what were some of these strategies that you employed to demonstrate to people that you're trustworthy and that it's okay for them to participate in research and not only in research, but just in care in general? 
it's always going to be hard. Like HIV is such a typical case. We need more black men to be in treatment, but also black men are still scarred from, you know, Tuskegee experiments. And I used to downplay how ingrained in the psyche of black men that research experience uh, had. The Tuskegee experiment was uh, the Public Health Service Corps. It was a U- U.S. agency organization. The really backbone of, uh, you know, U.S. public health uh, system it started a, a study within the 30s, and that went all the way into the 60s among, you know, southern black men where they would observe, in some instances, actually, you know, initiate them being infected with syphilis and trying to study sort of like how syphilis degrades the immune system without providing them with treatment and also without fully consenting them and letting them know that the the interest of of that study was to observe racial disparities of how syphilis interfaces with the immune system. So it it was a violation of people's autonomy. Uh, people were not told, uh, but also in the, the risks were not fully explained what, what some of the risks might, might have been. So that was the story that for a long time we all knew that this was going on in America, only in America and only among black men. But as uh, as recent as uh, 2000, and I think it's uh, eight years ago, paper just came out that also exposed the extent of the Tuskegee to Guatemala, where men, Guatemalan men, were actually being intentionally infected with, with syphilis to such extent as, you know, some of them being encouraged to sleep with sex workers who were known to have syphilis. And then when that didn't work, actually getting injection and syringes that were infected with syphilis and so like, you know, injecting that, that, the virus into their bodies. Yeah. So that was something that was done by the government. And when it came out, it came out just as, you know, civil rights was picking up. So a lot of, a lot of the background for that has been, well, we don't trust any of these research stuff we don't know what the government does when they do research on our bodies. And so that's just had a bad rub for, for many black men and even black women. I think everybody is just scarred from that uh, to trust researchers. And I think that's a huge battle for us, the, those of us that do research and want to work on, on racial equity types of projects. Yeah, that's really awful, terrible. It's completely understandable that people would be resistant with that history. You were talking about the need to have more Black men participating in research, and you were, I think, about to cover some of the ways that you've been able to actually accomplish that against this this horrific historical backdrop. I've been having serious reflections on my own self. And I think as I have proved myself to actually look at how can I affect and impact the system to an extent in which we can have people like the ones we want to have show up for interviews uh, and show up for research, participating in research, we also need to look internally. Who do we have that's doing research? And I think that's some of the reason why people are afraid of going the extra mile on, on, on really doing you know, work with prisoners or doing work with women or doing work with children or doing work with minorities is because many of our research teams don't have those populations. So if you're going to do community-oriented research with people who have no lived experience in those communities and you have no plan of incorporating those people into your staff, it's going to be challenging. So that's one of the reasons why you know, I've just noticed that many people might have the desire to do that kind of research, but then when they look internally, like, okay, this is going to mean that we change a couple of workforce development plans that we have. And for medical school, that translates into who are you admitted to to medical school. We had an intern in our lab who is Colorado on paper, perfect candidate for a PA program. To the nines, a 4.0 GPA, all for the high school, uh, the two masters that he had. And 
I think one of the reasons why he wasn't accepted into a very highly competitive PA program was because he was white and the program was looking for a good mix between minorities and people like him. Those questions begin to hurt for institutions because they are now no longer just about research ethics, but uh, the e- economics of the place, like the economics of medical school, the economics of the healthcare system. To really have equity in all these professions, we need to, to do some serious changes. And people are afraid about that. And it's hard and it's difficult work. But something that we've started doing in our lab, and, and I've really been passionate about this, it means more work for me. This idea of doorkeeping, if you make it, uh, you got to close the door and bring as many people as you can and from as many walks of life as you can. And I'll give you an example about this summer. I mean, this summer, I found myself with two interns. One recently gotten out of a treatment facility uh, for addiction and is wanting to change their life around to become a community health worker. So I went with my lab to be like, oh, listen, we can't have just college students be our interns. How about we tap into community colleges and bring some of these people into our into our lab? So I've been doing that. And then on the side, with COVID and schools ending, I was invited to speak at a black students conference and met students from all over the country, uh, mostly minority students who had just gotten the news that that summer internships had been rescinded because you can't they can't go to the office anymore. So I've taken six of them and. I work with them on a project that I'm doing in, in, in Africa, and it, it's, it's tough. I have them here, and I have two other ones in Africa that I work across three time zones, because the ones that I hear, one is on the West Coast, and the rest are here, and then I have another time zone in Africa. But I think it's going to require those kinds of efforts to build a workforce that's representative of the communities we want to, what we want to impact. So we are investing a lot of our extra time because, you know, if NIH has given us money to do X over five years, well, over five years, how many people can we train with this money to be able to become researchers so they can do their own research? And in the future, if they want to come back and work for us, we'll still be here and the research that they did, they did will be here and they can just start from there. But that, I mean, that's work. So that's, that's what we've, we've signed up for. And that's how we're dealing with how to get representation and also buy trust with the community. Because it's different from if I show up to a, a treatment facility and I've never had lived experience of substance use and I talk about what my, one of my studies is doing, people are just going to roll their eyes or they're going to be interested in the study, not for the sake of the research questions that we have or what we're trying to do, but because of the incentives we're bringing. But now that we have people who have come in from those places, they can speak about what this could look like for them. We've had so much tremendous success within the last two months from having this one intern from community college. We're flooded with phone calls. We have no clue how we're going to turn people away from our study because all of a sudden everybody in the communities that we couldn't recruit for the last six months want to be on our study. I think it's a balancing act. It will require some bold moves, and some of us just have to gut up and be like, you know, we just have our role is to, to gatekeep and get as many people in as we can and hope that that will change the people who are doing research, but also will begin to inform the kind of culture that we want to have among researchers. And then 
hopefully be able to buy trusted communities. Thank you for that. That that sounds like it's really well thought out and working well from from what you were just describing. So it's very encouraging. Best, best of luck for you in continuing on that process. Once we figure out how to systematize it, uh, I think it can be something that we can operationalize across, at least for, at Yale, we can operationalize it across uh, some of uh, the research studies that we work closely with. I mean, I think moving into the COVID pandemic and how that's affected things might be a good follow-up from this. I think, you know, COVID just fall into exactly like what I was talking with the interns. One of the things that's been impacted, and that's definitely impacting our participants in our research studies, is they can no longer come to us and, and have conversations with us. So the trust building has just gotten a little bit harder for us. But also, we are beginning to notice a lot of digital health disparities. I mean, people who we thought were connected to care are coming to us and saying, yeah, you know, they did say you know, as the COVID measures came in, there's going to be telehealth. But really, we, you know, I haven't seen my provider in like so many, in so many months. And as a result, things were too stressful and have relapsed. So we, we're seeing a lot of relapses that we did not see when we had you know, participants in our study. On the, the other one, the other study that we're looking at HIV, we're beginning to see a lot a lot more self-reported increase in risky sexual behaviors among you know, the youth that we're working with. I mean, COVID has really changed the landscape, but also just like HIV, I think COVID has exposed yet again really embedded disparities that we have. These self-reports can be desegregated and analyzed from a racial standpoint. The more you have someone else being impacted by intersectional issues, black, gay, in HIV and addiction, the worse outlook of that own sort of like, you know, personal health outcomes is. And the more affluent, the better, because now they're like, oh, I can download an app and you know, look at this. Like, I don't actually have to sit through a nurse going through my biometrics, but apparently I could just take all everything else that my health app is collecting and show up and, and send it over to them. And my appointment is only five minutes. We're beginning to see all those gaps. So COVID has really done us a service to make our case. One of the issues we're interested in looking at is how does environmental factors and, and social networks impact one's health decisions. And COVID has just really been a gift to us because one of the things that we use is we give people an app that they download on our phone and we use the same app to track their movements, but also deliver questions in real time where we can ask about you know, what, what their experiences have been with the social network and, and, and the environmental context in light of HIV prevention or addiction prevention. And what we are learning is COVID has definitely had a huge impact on, on how people are just navigating space, navigating relationships, and how that's translated to outcomes. Hmm. It sounds like there's a lot of barriers to telehealth being used across different communities. Can you speak mm-hmm. to what you think the barriers are there? Is it access to hardware? Is it access to connections? Is it access to education or just sort of the culture around uh, using these technologies routinely? Where should we start in terms of trying to improve mm-hmm. our ability to, to extend healthcare into underserved communities with technology? I'll give you a perspective, my perspective, and I'll try hopefully to do justice what other people might think are priorities. One of the things that I've been looking closely at, and again, it goes back to research ethics, is there's this thing called algorithmic racism. 
Okay. So the way algorithms themselves are designed, just like we have trials, pharmaceuticals or like drug development, we're also seeing the same impact in app development. In, in any biotech development, algorithms don't have enough of a social context that includes the social, the social context of minorities. So as a result, precision medicine, which is how telemedicine is sort of like being pushed out to everybody else, precision medicine is precise as long as you are white and affluent. Hmm. If you are not, your little context it does not get read by these algorithms. And where it's tough and where it's actually been for us is just photography. You're trying to take a picture as a black person to put it on your dating app to make yourself more appealing. Some of the features that are available to everybody else, if you use them on a photograph and you put your photograph on these dating apps, the picture qualities are different. Hmm. But also the enhancement features of, of, of pictures, they tend to emphasize lightness over dark complexion. Huh. complexion. So how you're trying to clean up and just airbrush the picture is to really get away the blemishes. And many of the blemishes are dark things. So that in itself gains a really bad association. If, if machine learning is to learn all of those things, that well, this is how this society is built up, where all we're going to have in these digital platforms, including telemedicine, is the same inequalities we have in the physical environment going over into the digital environment. And that's already happened, and it's already happening, and we're trying to figure out how to stop that. So that's one one thing I think uh, for the biggest barrier for me is, since we're looking at this from an equity lens, I don't think there has been enough emphasis on let's monitor all this, let's have some kind of standardization of how algorithms are deployed so that they can minimize some of the issues we already have in our society in the physical environment. And that's all around regulation. In America, is very, right now, the posture among our legislators and our regulators is very negative. And by negative, you mean resistant to regulation? One of the biggest barriers for America is going to be the regulatory environment. Like, you know, do we have coordinated effort by our policymakers to create a policy infrastructure for telemedicine to actually exist. Right now, we have a patchwork of HIPAA, we have a patchwork of GINA, we have a patchwork of high-tech that are influencing uh, how we both regulate these technologies, but also how they get deployed. And when you look at them, they're totally different. The reasons why they emerge are totally different. HIPAA was never really designed to do any of the things that we now know HIPAA to do. HIPAA came from the insurance world, which has nothing to do with PHI, on the clinical, sort of like, uh, and its clinical implications. And then Gina is coming in, and Gina is trying to look at genetics, but it's trying to look at genetics in a very dis- defined way, that the way they, they roll out the legislation, like, oh, wow. So how is this supposed to work with HIPAA? How is this supposed to work with X? And then you look at high tech, which came in after with Obama, because the economy was, was going to shambles, and we needed to revive the economy. The regulatory infrastructure in this country also a limiting factor to the potential of telemedicine. So there's the design of the technology itself, the regulatory environment. And then the other thing is on the empowerment side and how we're trying to really empower patients. Are we trying to empower patients or are we trying to empower consumers? Facebook and Apple are on the scene. And Apple, folks are not watching, Apple has done one of the most genius 
development when it comes to M Health. They've created a research, you know, a research app that either computer science science on your research team, but you can download their app and you can go into the you know into the GitHub, which is a repository of software, and work with that so like an embedded code and develop any kind of intervention you, you want to have on an on an Apple phone. Mm-hmm. And and be able to collect information, be able to do all these kinds of research. It's simplified it so much that the question now becomes: you know, if Apple is not a healthcare provider, Apple public, is not is not a public you know, a public authority. But now they are functioning within this world of research, within this world of you know how we are consuming care, commercialize what is essentially a public good, and we have no response. Well, legislators and it doesn't seem like there's any appetite from them to like want to push back hmm. so that's a problem and facebook is now also began to be interested in i mean, they, I mean facebook i mean that, that case is mostly public but they've been more public since 2016 and the cambridge analytical thing which was exposing how you, know, you can use social media to influence politics but what people don't realize is you can do the same thing with healthcare we can cultivate social media chatter and create situational reports of outbreaks across the country. Mm. But we can also cultivate social media chatter and actually launch you know, a bioterrorist attack on an entire healthcare system because you can just, with that those same uh, misinformation, you can misinform an entire population about something that's not real. That's yeah. just, but because it's being generated on social media, there's chatter. And that's what I'm sort of like, you know, like, those are things that are on the design side. So software is an issue, policy is an issue, and the hardware side is always going to be an issue. Like in our study, we are noticing that among our addiction programs, many of them have step phones. So they call them Obama phones because they came with Obama legislation and and the need for having people have some way of communicating with their providers. But that functionality are so limited that even if you have telemedicine that's available for folks on Medicaid, for some of them, it's just going to be harder to access it because our phone is just not compatible with some of the things, the sophistication of the software that people are using to, to utilize that health service. So hardware is an issue. And then without talking too much about it, I'll probably end here because I think it's, it's, a, it's a bigger conversation that we can have as a breakout is surveillance. Is a, is a really is a complicated issue. Data tracking and what all these technologies are doing without collecting too much information, it's becoming very hard. Even we struggle with our participants telling them, like you know, for the for the next twelve months, what this app is going to do is going to track all your movements wherever you go. It's going to track it, and then the only control we have, and because we're a research study, the only controls that are going to impose, we're going to agree with you after so many days of you know data collection, GPS data collection, like which locations do you want the app to track mm-hmm. to collect this information? Like we have those controls, but the government does not have to tell anybody else like, you know, that they have those controls. I mean, certainly Facebook does not tell you that you know you have those controls and constantly collecting data. So surveillance is becoming an issue. And there, I think there's a, a Canadian and some, some Australians are looking at something called surveillance capitalism and the dangers of surveillance capitalism. And I don't think as many, you know, as many people are listening to that. But so those are sort of like some of the issues that I think are, will be a challenge for, for, for telemedicine. It's here, it's not going anywhere, but it's going to have to struggle with these things. 
Before we get too far away from it, I just wanted to make sure that we catch our listeners up. We were talking about HIPAA and GINA and this this term PHI, and I just wanted to make sure that those were clearly defined for people. I can certainly start. HIPAA is the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act of, I believe, 1997 that basically defines how health information has to be protected. And that's that term PHI is protected health information. For example, your HIV status or your medical notes or your lab results. And it defines how that can be handled legally and that your doctor can't sell it to a corporation or otherwise leak it because it's it's an important civil liberty that that be confidential. Gina, I'm actually less familiar with. Uh, Cecil, could you comment on that? So Gina is, if I still remember, it's Genetic Information Non-Discriminatory Act. It's come about because of the boom of gen- genomics and trying to come up with some ethical principles and guidelines, actual guidelines on how to handle that information to the point to sort of like achieve the same thing that HIPAA and, and high tech are trying to do with uh, people's personal health information. So, you know, how can we reduce both usage, but also how can we store this information and uh, who's liable to uh, to what and what can that information be useful? You know, with DNA now, you can pretty much do anything. You can, you can find out if someone else committed a crime so many centuries ago and it's in that family, family but it was never reported and all those things. And, and, you know, you can also use the same information to, you know, do other worse things that folks in, in genetics are beginning to think about, like, you know, designer babies. How do we reduce the impact of or the potential of that and not being the society in which we live in? So that's how Gina has come about. But it's got so many weaknesses inbuilt in it. But for not wanting to be left behind, I think the U.S. has decided to just have that as a as a policy that's adopted separate from everything else. And I think that's a disaster. I think we need it. Like we need to be like the Europeans, have something that's coordinated, something that's centralized, a policy that we can apply across all our 50 states, and we know exactly how each player and each act and each actor is going to be impacted by it. Right now, we just don't have that, and and HIPAA doesn't necessarily give us that. Even though folks tend to em- overemphasize HIPAA privacy and all that stuff, it's only HIPAA privacy for a very limited time. But what, when you see what, uh, in, I think Cambridge Analytica and the Facebook, not the Facebook, the Netflix, the great hack, I think it's called, that the documentary they did, if you look at what some of the data activists are trying to advocate for when they say data is a, is a human right, and you look at why they're saying that, some of those statements are exactly what I'm, I'm afraid of will begin to happen if this patchwork of legislation is not coordinated and, and, and organized. It's a scary thought. Yeah, it sounds like there's, right, there's really a lot of different factors at play. It sounds like without having a stronger, more coordinated regulatory approach. Perhaps we can close with how can people find out more about what you're doing if they're interested in reading up on this, especially maybe before we can get another episode on the books and, and dive deeper into some of these projects. Our, we're, des- we're redesigning our website. Uh, right now, we it's ARCH. So if people go to Yale School of Public Health and look up the ARCH lab, and ARCH stands for Advancing Community Health and Relationships and more nerdy people. Uh, we have all our articles that have been published on any research work we have recently done at the intersection of technology and social behavior and health utilizations, they should all be there. 
So I think that would be the quickest way. The other thing which I was hoping since you guys are in Sakara to get at, but which I wasn't able to get through here is the boom in brain science and the impact of, of any of this stuff that we're talking about on things, the experience of receiving care and all that, and what you can do with I have a project that will be releasing preliminary studies on that. It's in South Africa. It's working among adults and youth. But that, as soon as we build that website out and the information is ready for, for dissemination, we'll share that with you. But for now, that website should give you enough of a flavor. And if people can want to get even more savvy, now bibliographies, you can see some of the studies that we cite that have been doing this innovative work as well. Thank you. Yeah, no, thank you so much, guys. Thanks for listening, everyone. We hope that if you enjoyed this episode, you will let somebody know. Maybe leave us a review or a rating on your favorite podcast platform. And feel free to reach out to us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or by email at againstdisease at gmail.com. For our next episode, we hope you'll join us as we welcome back our first podcast guest ever, Jennifer Payne, as she and her colleague Lauren Osborne will speak with us about women's mental health and kind of expand on a lot of the topics that we touched on back in episode four. So we're quite excited to share that with you. Hope to see you again soon.